Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So we begin the book of Proverbs. And if you have ever had the opportunity to read any part of the Proverbs, you'll find that when you consider or think of Proverbs, the one word that often jumps out at your mind is the word wisdom, wisdom. And for those of us who are a little older in our years, I would say once you hit 40, at least for me, I had this thought. I always thought, wow, I wish I could take my 40-year-old brain and put it into my teenager self. And if I could only take the wisdom and experience and understanding of what I have and just have it when I was young, life would have been so much easier. Anyone ever think that way? It was just me. <laughs> I, it's a... There's a, often a, a phrase that you know, we encounter that, um, that youth is wasted on youth. <laughs> and it's because we always have this idea that I just know so much more about life. And yet, I'm learning it as I'm aging. And so the graph is inverted, really. Wisdom and years. And so we ask the question of, why does that happen? What takes place? And really a more fundamental question is, what is wisdom? What is wisdom? There are many different ways that we can understand wisdom. And if we get the word wrong, we will be utterly foolish. A smart and wise, experienced person in our world could be the most foolish person before God's eyes. So we have to get this definition right or else we're just going to go astray. And that's why this first chapter of Proverbs and this verse within this first chapter really unlocks every proverb that we're going to encounter throughout this study and look together in this series. I'd like to look then at these three main components of this verse. First, wisdom. Second, fear. And third, folly. Wisdom, fear, and folly. To understand wisdom, it's really important to remember who wrote the Proverbs. And all we need to do is to look at verse one. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Now, many of us who have grown up in the church or know Solomon's story, you sort of already have a whole picture running through your head of all of who Solomon is. But one thing that we know about Solomon from the Bible is that Solomon was wise. And the question is, how did he become wise? How did he get to that place? Well, in his earliest years as a king, perhaps when he was a child even, or a teenager, God came to him in a dream. And God said to Solomon, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon's answer was as follows. You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. 
I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? There's a, a few things about Solomon's request that you need to note from this passage. First is that, notice he didn't ask God for wisdom. I think there's this assumption that he did ask God for wisdom, but he didn't. Instead, he considered, actually spoke much about God's character and nature, and also about his father and how his father viewed God. His father loved God. His father had a relationship with God. He, he walked before him. He was walking, walking for him in faithfulness, and he had a heart towards him. It was that God loved David, David loved God. And David, yes, he did all the ritual sacrifices. Actually, he multiplied it by many times over. But that all expressed that David just simply had a sincere heart for God. He really loved God deeply. David didn't look at God as the angry God who's going to punish him if he messed up. David believed that God cared for himself, his family, and Israel. And when Solomon, as a young boy, saw his dad, who had this deep, intimate love for God, sort of said, I want that. I want that. I, and, and that really struck David. So it's really the basis of that relationship. And on that basis, verse 9, look at what Solomon asked for. Not wisdom, but he says, give me an understanding mind. Literally, it's Give me a, a heart that is listening, a listening heart. Why? Because Solomon knows that he's inclined to a non-listening heart. You don't ask for a listening heart if you already have one. You ask for a listening heart because you already know, I don't listen to God. I don't know him. Your heart is closed to God. And so he's saying, oh God, I see my father having this intimate, open heart towards you. I don't know what that feels like. I want that. Show me that myself. And so, well, you know Solomon's story. God was so pleased with Solomon's request that he said this, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding or the listening heart to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you. Notice he, does, he gives him the assumption is now that he's opened his heart, God provides wisdom. See, you need the open heart to God. So the heart that's asking this question already reveals his heart is opening to God. And so now God says, I'm going to provide wisdom for you and discernment. Those two things helps us to choose what is God's will for us, how we can walk in step with where God is at. And God says, I'm going to provide this. I give you also what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. I tend to think that sometimes we have this idea that God is a selfish God or a, he's miserly. He doesn't really provide or he doesn't really give. 
abundantly. But always what God is looking for is the relationship. And when that is true, then get ready because he's going to bless you beyond what you can ever ask for or imagine. It doesn't always happen in the way that we think it should, but he provides. And that's something that really reveals whether you have a listening heart. You know, see, it's, if you have an open heart to God, then you trust the way he provides and the abundance of his provision. And he never fails you, never. But only you see things like that. Your life is like that when you have a listening heart, an open heart. So God gives him this wise and discerning heart and he never stops blessing. But there is a condition upon which you get that listening heart. And it comes in verse seven. What faded from Solomon's heart, and you know this, is that because that's probably the question you have is, well, wait a second, Sam. Solomon, I know his story, and he really eventually did not listen to God. In fact, he went the opposite way. The problem was that he disregarded the words he wrote in verse seven. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is to say, without fear of the Lord, there is no wisdom, it's not possible. And so you might think, wait a second, but fear, I thought that was a sin or a, at least a consequence of sin. Isn't fear bad? Why is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? This has to be uh, nailed down to your heart as you especially look through Proverbs because you can read Proverbs and see it as a bunch of do's and don'ts and wisdom principles and, and sort of practical helps. And so it's easy to walk away from Proverbs reading it as, okay, it, almost like a, a guidebook for life and there's an indices and in the back it's, parenting, anger, greed, discipline, and you say, I need, some, I need some help on discipline. And so you go to all the verses in Proverbs on discipline, and you think, if I just do all those things, everything will be okay. Well, there's some truth to that, but it's actually rooted on verse seven. Verse seven unlocks everything else, and without verse seven, then every, with all those, those helps can be a hurt can be of the road to a fool. Because doing things without actually having the fear of the Lord is no wisdom at all. The fear of the Lord, therefore, what Solomon does is throughout, he intersperses this phrase, fear of the Lord. I'm gonna give you literally three, but there's about 15 of them. And they're all throughout Proverbs. Proverbs 15:33. the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom. Proverbs 2, 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Because Solomon knows, maybe it's because he himself forgot, you're gonna forget the fear of the Lord, especially as we go through this series. So I will try to remind you uh, when we're, like I said, discussing discipline or laziness or work ethic or justice and when we go through these helps and pra practical examples, it's easy to forget, oh yeah, this is about the fear of the Lord. I have to go back to that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That helps us to have the right foundation for all of these principles. Now, here's the question though. Why is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? And here's the answer. Because if you do not 
have the fear of the Lord, you will never actually follow the Lord. You will not have a heart open to the Lord. It's actually the right awe and wonderment of a fear of who God is, who as authority, as powerful, as holy, as mighty, that actually keeps us obeying him, trusting in him, following him, placing our hope in him as the rock, as the one who is steadfast, who is faithful to his promises, everything we sang about, all of that is rooted on us having this fear. And without it, we actually completely disobey him. We don't care about him at all. He becomes actually not powerful, but powerless. And we don't see him as wise, we see him as a fool. When I was in high school, I had a biology teacher. He was, uh, um, the, when he was in high school, he was at my high school, and he was the captain of the football team. He was the, uh, like a star linebacker. And he was strong, powerful. He taught high school biology. I also went to an all-boys Catholic high school. And there, he, he had one problem. He was really nice. He was so nice that he cared a lot about us liking him. And may I say that while you might think that's a good thing, generally, when you're in a position of authority, when all you care about is people liking you, things really fall apart very quickly. And I remember one time we were having a, he was having a, we were dissecting frogs. And, um, you know, he stepped out for about five minutes. And as soon as he stepped out, one student started taking frog skin and throwing it at somebody else. And then legs started flowing around and parts. And it was literally all over the walls, hanging on hooks. Um, you know, I was in everyone's hair and he came back and got his detention pad out and just started flying out detentions. He could not, he lasted one year, just the year that we were there. And I felt really, well, I felt bad for him now. At the time, I didn't really understand feeling bad for somebody like that. But why did that happen? Strong man, really, really physically strong guy. Because he actually cared too deeply about us liking him. And when you are in that place, when the student controls who is in control of the classroom, the man or the woman who is in authority no longer is in authority. And that person is not wise, but a fool. And students who think they have rule and reign as gods over this classroom, suddenly it's all chaos and disruption. That is not wisdom. You see, without the fear and awe and reverence of a holy and just and powerful God, you and I, we will not obey him. We will not listen to his word, we will not read it, we will not think of it as anything of import. In fact, he will be the fool to us. And we will be God. We will be the one who is wise. We will be the one who knows everything. That is called pragmatic atheism. And it's the idea that God is not everything he says he is, and I am everything I say that I am, and I control my world and my universe. And therefore, when someone approaches me with God's word and says, hey, I, brother, sister, I see you really struggling. May I share with you an area? 
just even the slightest, most gracious correction will still resist it, disregard it, because God's word is backed by a weak, helpless, old, senile grandfather who's just watching from the cosmic heaven of above, smiling and laughing and having his jolly old time while we run amok. Is this the God that we think we need to worship? No, you need a powerful, holy, just, wrathful God against sin, your sin, my sin, the world's sin, or else God can do nothing. He is nothing. He is something we construct. Therefore, Proverbs asks us, in order to understand everything that is going to be written here, you have to see God as this gigantic God, an infinite, immeasurable God. Now Solomon, he watches his father have this relationship, his dad David, have this relationship with God. And remember, who was David? And how was Solomon in existence? David did some pretty atrocious things to his own mother, Solomon's mother, which produced Solomon. Obviously, that must be a true conundrum to his own system of understanding life and the world. How can you even begin to sort of unpack all that unless you have this grand view of God and his sovereignty, his plan, his providence? We would say that if one of us were to have that type of family history, it's so easy to look back and see all of the psychological impact that it would have, the trauma, the pains and sorrows that that has on your understanding of the world. Well, Solomon faced that, and there is no way he could overcome all of that without having this awesome fear of God. But tragically, Solomon, who wrote about it, who saw it, who asked God for it, what happened to Solomon? He still failed. He still forgot. You know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, as the old saying goes. And so Solomon himself still didn't get it. If Solomon can not get it, then so too we. How does that happen? C.S. Lewis insightfully describes it this way. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. If our pride keeps us sort of lifting our nose, sneering at people, deriding them in our hearts and minds. Is it any wonder that we have a hard time seeing God as he is? Because we ourselves believe we are God. We're judging every single person around us by our standards. I don't think there is, there is rarely an instance where we can judge another person 100% without any other motive except for um, pure generosity and care and compassion. 99% perhaps, but there is that little bit that still says, good job, Sam. You're really evaluating this person well and you are better than them. 
There, there's always a little bit of that. So if this can happen to Solomon, and as C.S. Lewis notes, we, we really get deterred from seeing God as he is because of our inherent nature to not extend grace and mercy to people. What helps us in that scenario? The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord kills off the deadly virus of the inflated self. And there is nothing greater in my heart, I know, than the inflated self. As a teenager, I knew what was best and right. In college, you know more than your underclassmen, which is really ludicrous when you think about it, right? Isn't it funny how a senior is so much wiser than a sophomore in college? And they're the ones who are leading small groups and they, all the sophomores and freshmen go to the senior or junior and say, you have so much wisdom, please help me. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's, it's interesting looking back now, many, many decades later to say, wow, you know, the senior self didn't know that much more than the sophomore self. The, the challenge is that the teen years, we tend to think we know a lot. We know so much. And if you really track it in accordance with the way scripture sees it, is actually the older you get, the more you see your lack of wisdom. Anyone experience that? Besides me? <laughs> I like, seriously, the older I get, the more I see, wow, I really falter and fail. And the more I read God's word after now decades of reading it, the more I see how much I fall short, truly of God's glory. But the younger I was, especially when I just graduated from seminary, I thought I was the, a theological genius. And there's one person, a couple of people in this room who were literally there when I preached my first sermon ever. And it was basically a theology lecture on things that I had no idea what I was talking about. But you feel good about yourself, proud, know a lot of information. That's sort of how it works. The older you become, Lord willing, it's not always like this, but the older you become, the more you realize I fall short. The younger you are, we think I know a lot. And that's why there's rebellion, because a teenager will say, mom, dad, stop talking. I know it all, you don't even have to say anything. My friends, I know some of you think, you have a, you have a young child and you say, oh, my child is so cute. They're never gonna rebel. They're never gonna, you know, they're never gonna say. Well, think of the first words that come out of the mouth of a baby. Mommy, daddy, no. Third word, no. See, it doesn't start in the teenage years or the adult years, it starts in the infant years. And in those infant years, it's not a no to you, it's a no to God. You, as we're gonna see in Proverbs, represent God, his authority, his structure. And so when they're saying no to you, they're ultimately saying no to God. And as we're gonna see, there's a reason why there's things like discipline and um, teaching and correcting and training because you're not training them to live successfully in this world, you're training them to follow Christ. And the more you get that, the more you will see you're also being trained. The training of your own children is 
your training, and I, I think most parents see that, that the, there's a reflection, that your children are mirrored to your own sinfulness. Again, this is a lot of this is gonna come soon in parenting when we talk about uh, Proverbs. But if I could tell you teenagers um, what is wisdom for you, if you could get this, you will leapfrog someone like me, leaps and bounds in wisdom. And it is this, be teachable. Be someone who says, to go to different people and say, help me to learn. I wanna grow in my fear of the Lord. Help me to be wise. Would you teach me? Would you correct me? (laughs) Whether it's a mom or a dad or a, a, a mentor in your life, be someone who is open to hearing. And if you could get that, wow. That is just an explosion of increase of power of wisdom. But it is this folly that keeps us from that wisdom. Now, let's look at what this folly looks like. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools despise wisdom and destruction. You know what the word for, in Hebrew, the word Fool literally means grow thick. It means someone who is thick-headed and thick-hearted, whose heart is literally thickening in their fullness of themselves. So your, your own ego is activating your, your heart and your mind so much that words cannot penetrate you. And I'm not talking about bad words. I'm talking about even words of correction and love and mercy and grace, that doesn't get through because your heart is slowly thickening. That's the fool. The fool doesn't realize it. And that's another thing about a fool is that fools don't realize they're fools. Every fool thinks they're wise. And so the more you try to be wise when you're a fool, you become more foolish, more thick, more hard-hearted. It's in what I would describe as intentional insanity due to sheer pride and it is idiocy. I love the way one commentator describes it. He says, the fool is an incorrigible ignoramus. I know you don't like these words, and I know, but this is what Proverbs is saying. And notice there's a key word, fools despise wisdom and instruction. They hate they, they uh, have a disdain for it. There's a rejection. And according to Psalm 14:1, the fool says there is no God. So there is a absence of God. There is a lifting up of self. And whenever there is a, a statement that says the fool says there is no God, there's also an assumption, an inference. That is, there is still a God. It's just that it's not the God of the universe. It's I'm the God. So the fool lives as though their God and God of the, the God of the universe is non-existent. So it's, it's disdain. And then, because I don't believe that there is this God of the universe, and I believe I'm the God of the universe, I only live for and believe what I say and I do. I don't see God's word as applicable to my heart and my life. I don't wanna live by it. And I might even say I live by it, but practically, I reject it. You see this so often when people try to um, describe why they're making a decision. If it's, 
Oh, I decided to take on this other job. Well, why? And, and most of us don't want to do this because we feel bad. We don't want to hurt someone's feelings. We don't want to be too intrusive in someone's life. We don't want to sound like we're judging the person. But oftentimes, if you say, well, tell me why you decided to do this. The first instinct is sometimes to hear, well, I'm dissatisfied, um, or I, I want to make more money, or I wasn't really uh, thought well of in my previous workplace, and so therefore I decided to do this. Rarely, rarely do you hear any semblance, even, even if it's wrongly done, to a connection to God's word. It's oftentimes due simply to experience and emotionalism, and that's it. And that's about almost every decision that we make. If we're not regularly looking and seeing, what does God's word have to say? Now, here's the thing. The, why, do, why does that lead to wisdom? Because if I do believe that there is a God of the universe, and I do have a fear of him, and I do believe his words to be true, and it's always to my benefit, my ultimate benefit, then I will look at God's word, and I will try to determine life through that lens. And that is to my benefit. That's called wisdom. But my friends, there is a despising. Despising doesn't always look despising, but it is a despising. It's a rejection. If God's word says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And I, as a husband, have a hundred reasons as to why I shouldn't love my wife that way. Or I'm not even going to try to love my wife that way. Or, but, but God, you know, this is what my wife does to me. This, this, this. And then I think, well, let me see. Jesus, he died for me, and I was a wretched sinner, and I did nothing good towards him, and he still gave his life for me. And then it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So how can I, as a husband, who is saying, I do believe God's word, how can I then come up with my thousand excuses to not love my wife as Christ loved the church when I say I believe it? If I act that way, I'm despising instruction, and I'm a fool. Wives, submit to your husbands. But do you know what my husband's like? Now, there's, I know there's a lot of different scenarios and case, case and situations. I'm, I'm, there is a, that's the thing about Proverbs. There's a general principle. There are different circumstances that come in the way. We need to explain and understand and understand nuances and all these challenges. But generally speaking, we need to see, am I living as though I really believe this or not? If the answer is yes, then it should impact the way that I view life and the world. My friends, this is so important for us to understand wisdom. If Jesus says to Peter, how many times, Peter says, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times, which is a lot. So let's say seven big forgivenesses, right? And you get into a conflict with a friend and you have seven big ones that's actually a lot of forgivenesses because people generally hurt you maybe three times. And that's actually how the Pharisees saw it. Three times is good enough. Because most people, if you have a, I've had conflicts with close friends, church members, my, my family. I would say in our lives, maybe I've had three conflicts with each person that are really significant. So seven is Peter's going, I'm going to go way over the top and say seven. And Jesus says, 
Sorry. It's not seven. It's 70 times seven. And actually seven, Jesus is saying, that's figurative. It really means you have to always forgive them. (laughs) So it just blows away our understanding of relationship and the way that we think about the world. And but if I'm a fool, I'm thick-headed. And in my thick-headed, thick-heartedness, I say, no, I'm not going to do that. I refuse. You don't know the type of people that I have in my life. And you know, I'm actually pretty good relative to them. And I'm a much better husband than that person over there. Sorry, I'm not pointing at you, Chris, or anything. <laughs> there, you know, that person over there. I, I'm a... Anyone ever say that? I've actually said that to my wife. Well, you know, I'm a a lot better than a lot of other husbands. (laughs) That's called a fool. (laughs) Thick-headed, thick-hearted, not able to see what is right because I don't want to submit to God's word. That's what it boils down to. I say such things because I don't want to believe God's word. How do you get yourself out of this? When God says, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, and then we give up meeting together, and then we have all these excuses, that's called a fool, thick-headed, thick-hearted. Again, I don't want to um, make it seem as though there are no instances there, what about this exception, but generally speaking, we have to see this. And so Proverbs is going to go through this regarding parenting, regarding laziness, and work, and money, and recreation, and all sorts of things. And we have to see that there are two paths in every one of these these areas. The path of the wise, and the path of the foolish. The path of the wise always has the fear of the Lord. That's primary. The path of the foolish is thick-hearted. path of the wise is always open to God. The path of the uh, the fool is always closed-hearted to God. So, I don't know about you, but as I went through this, I just started getting more and more convicted. Wow, I've been a fool way too many times. <laughs> way too many. If, if the definition of a fool is thick-hearted, despising instruction, my life has been filled with a lot of foolishness, and doesn't all those acts of foolishness make me a fool? And the answer is absolutely yes. I'm a fool. Yeah, I'm, I'm the president of the Fool's Club standing before you and I fear God way too little and I fear you and your opinion way too much I fear what I can losing control over my own life and I fear relinquishing control to God what hope is there where do we get hope from that how can a fool become wise you know how because the wisest of all had to become a fool. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 21 through 25. Paul says, for the word of the cross is foolishness, folly to those who are perishing. So the world says the cross is idiocy. It's the idiot ignoramus that believes it. But to us who are being saved, to us fools, it is the power of God For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, 
a stumbling block to Jews, and folly, foolishness, idiocy to the Gentiles, but to those of us who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And then listen to this, for the foolishness of God, meaning the cross, is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Jesus, what did he become when he came and condescended? When Paul says in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, that he emptied himself and made himself nothing. You know what he became? He became a fool to the world. He, is a, he was a fool so that he could rescue fools, so that he could bear the weight of fools. The cross was the place where God became nothing. And he would break through our thick hearts and our thick minds so that we would finally come to enjoy him, to delight in him, to fear him, to worship him, to have a new identity. There is no way we would ever turn to God because we have too much education, we have too many resources, we have too much personality and experiences, we have too much beauty. We have way too much going for ourselves to ever think that God should be listened to, should be worshiped, should where we cast our crowns, everything is thrown at his feet and say, Lord, we surrender all, I surrender all. Nothing will bring us to that place unless God himself becomes the fool for us so that we might become in Christ the wisdom of God. Proverbs will not make sense without the cross of Christ. It really won't because it's what keeps us mindful of the fact that our efforts, our intellect, our energies, it drives us to foolishness, the ways of the world. Because here's the thing, the world will end for all of us. On the last day of your life, on the last moment, it is the fool that Jesus says who is still concerned about building their barns, concerned about their stock portfolio, their inheritances, their retirement plans. That is called a fool but it is the Lord who brings you to himself and says, my friends, I offer you abundant life eternally forever. I will never leave you. You will always be satisfied. And if you can have that today, you will be the wisest person who ever lived. Let's pray together and prepare for communion. Father, as we come to this table, we cannot come and eat and drink without first recognizing just what took place 2,000 years ago when God the Son condescended so that he would be lowly, he would be despised, rejected. Lord, you would be despised so we fools who despise you would not be despised by the Father. You would face reviling. You would be spat upon, Lord Jesus, struck on your face, nailed. People would make fun of you, Lord, by putting a, a purple robe on you, 
mockingly think that you are a, a king as you, your flesh was torn. The thorns on your head where blood is simply pouring out. Jesus, in your utter weakness, when you were nailed and raised on that cross, is there any more foolish picture in this world, naked, full of shame from the world, and you bore that so that we who despise the God of the universe would be welcomed as sons and daughters? Who could understand such mercy and love? As we come to this table, O oh Lord, help us not to come with pride, thinking of ourselves too highly, but rather help us to see that our hope rests in Christ, that you exalt the humble. And you lift us up. We thank you, O oh Lord, for this grace, for this kindness that you've shown to us, which you've lavished on us. In Jesus' name we pray.